Europe is a land of gourmet eaters. I grew up thinking cheese was the shape of the bread, but not in Europe. Oh no, those cheese shops are a festival of mold. My friend picks up a moldy wad of camembert. Ooh, Rick, smell this cheese. It smells like... Oh, it smells like the feet of angels. Europeans are experts at enjoying the truffles, the terroir, the extra virgin olive oil, eating with the season, choosing just the right restaurant. Don't be attracted to the biggest neon sign bragging we speak English and accept visa cards. You want a small, handwritten menu in the local language, catering to locals. Not much selection, shaped by what was fresh in the market this morning. Up next, we eat our way through Europe with Jamie Blair Gould, a man who's made his career out of helping Americans enjoy the wonders, the edible wonders of Europe. It's all coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Some of the greatest pleasures of travel are edible. Tasting the local delicacies as well as the everyday food is an important part of experiencing the cultures and lands we visit. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Jamie Blair Gould gives us a taste and a whiff of Europe's edible Dolce Vita. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've got some great travelers on the line, and actually I can hardly wait to hear what they got to say. we got James in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. James, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Thanks for your call. What, what are you thinking about? Well, my brother and our family did a cooking school in the south of France last summer and maybe want to do another one in Tuscany or somewhere in Italy. wondered if you'd run into any of those. Wow. You know, I personally have not, but I know my tour department is really into having these cooking demonstrations, Mm -hmm. and especially in France and Italy, where so many travelers are going and so many people have traveled a lot. They've seen the museums. They've done the, the, the first to do things. They want to go back there and have a more intimate experience. And reading the feedback from the people who have taken our tours, these cooking demonstrations are just great. I know in Italy there are a lot of agriturismos that are finding ways to have people have more fun with more activities on their farm. All over Europe, small farms are having to do creative things to stay in business. Just like in America, it's tough for small farms to make it. And all over England, they're renting out rooms and sharing their traditional sort of take on life. So classic way to do that would be to teach people how to cook in Tuscany or something like this. Mm-hmm. You're thinking about um, a cooking class in Provence, did you say? We did that last year, last okay, summer. So now you want to do it in Italy. Yeah, and we're looking for something that's, that's participatory and... Um one that might be a bit more challenging because my brother is already a professional chef. So in some of my research, we found things that, you know, it's kind of boiling water 101. Well, we're a little beyond that now. Yeah. And so we need one that maybe is a little, a little more challenging uh, only in, in Italy. Where in Italy exactly? Well, we've been, I've been to, to Tuscany in the Chianti area, which would, be, which would be fun to go back to, um, mostly for the history and, of course, the wine is delicious. Well, that's very, very trendy down there. And if you wanted to know where we go with our tours, and you can do that on your own, you're welcome to email us at, at ricksteves.com, and my staff would look that up for you. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Otherwise, you could Google that or um, it, whatever I would do. I would be very careful to get some uh, sense of feedback from customers so you know how hands-on mm-hmm. it is and how 101 it is or higher up. You know, Right, right. Yeah, I'm sorry, I don't know a lot of specifics on that, but I do know that when you do go to Tuscany, you would want to tie in with that tours of uh, olive oil, families that have been making olive oil for generations, uh, families that have been making the wine for generations, and they oftentimes pull out all the stops and giving you a wonderful spread of cold cuts and, and things they've produced right in their farm. I stayed at a agriturismo in the house of Signora Gori, and she makes her prosciuttos there, and she uh, you can uh, walk through the farm and, and, and see them aging the cheese and, and uh, visit with the sheep. And she says she knows each of her sheep because the sheep are making helping her produce the cheese, and they're doing it without the modern pasteurization and homogenization or whatever that is required in modern commerce, but they're in the slow food movement. And they do things old-fashioned. They do things... Uh, more handmade. They do things right on the farm. They do things without chemicals. They do things more expensive. And local people recognize this. And they know the woman. They know the woman knows her sheep. And they have some sort of uh, quality 
appreciation of just consuming locally from local people, and they're willing to pay more for it. That's sort of the essence of the slow food movement that you learn about when you go to mm-hmm. Italy. Well, thank you. I wanted to say that we, we very much enjoyed and used your book in the south of France, and it worked great, um, especially into the Ile sur la Sorge and, and so forth. That was, it was great fun. All right. Well, you know, remember, Italy is the most crowded and trendy destination in Europe right now. It is packed. And, I mean, every, by every measure, everybody is going to Italy. It is, and, you know, the grueling thing about Italy is the heat and the crowds of summer. So if you're going in the summer, I mean, I'm going in the summer. I went in the summer with my family just a couple of summers ago and had a blast. But uh, it just bumps up all the, the headaches and the uh, delays and the expense. You'll do yourself a favor if you can avoid July and August in Italy. Great. Well, thank you. Good luck with your travels. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye now. Bye-bye. 877-333-RICK. We have Josie in Wyoming. Hi, what's on your mind? Uh, my husband and I will be going over to Europe up in Stockholm, but first we're going to go to Germany and hopefully visit some relatives in Hamburg. Oh, yeah. And then we'd like to travel up to the west coast of Sweden, uh, Gothenburg, where I'm going to be meeting up with my brother for a few days. Right. So I'd like your advice on the best way to get up to Sweden uh, from Hamburg, right. either by train or we heard that there's an overnight ferry that goes up there. So there's an overnight ferry, and there's great trains. And before these days, before you take any long surface trip, in Europe, you should look into flying because you'd be surprised how often it's cheaper to fly than it is to take the train or uh, drive or take a bus or anything like that. Uh-huh. Uh, and in the old days, nobody ever flew. It was, I mean, if you're spending your own money, point-to-point flights in Europe were just ridiculously expensive. But now, for well under $200, you can generally fly from point-to-point anywhere in Europe. You're going from Hamburg. There's a direct um, uh, train connection to Copenhagen. And the train actually goes on to the ferry from Puttgarten to Rodby, connecting Germany to Denmark. Mm-hmm. And for my first time, I thought, this is kind of strange. I, actually, it surprised me. We're, I didn't know how we're going to get across this body of water. The train stops, and there's a little bit of jumbling and noise as the train is broken apart. And slowly, the train is shuffled onto the ferry. And then in a few minutes, the ferry takes off. And it's kind of nice because you have an hour on the ferry, and you wander around. Sometimes there's a smorgasbord being served. And by the time you land in Denmark, the train is put back together and you're on your way, and an hour later you're pulling into Copenhagen. Oh, okay. Um, And eventually we want to get up to the west coast of Sweden. And so what would be the best way, you know, after Copenhagen? Well, again, it depends on what sort of mode of transportation you're committed to. Um, To have good sort of um, mobility, it's nice to have a car, but probably you're not going to rent a car just for a few days. So, again, just remember the public transportation in Europe is, is fantastic. They just opened a big bridge between Copenhagen and Malmo over to Sweden, and that's actually a tourist site in itself. The, the train goes over the bridge. Many people, just for fun, take the train over to Malmo just to go on that big bridge. Oh, okay. And now, you know, just sort of overnight when they open that bridge, Malmo and Copenhagen are one big metropolitan area, big, actually bigger than Stockholm, which is quite a uh, an amazing uh a change in the economic dynamic of the whole of all Scandinavia. Suddenly, you've got this this connected, connecting two great cities, Copenhagen and Malmo, making it more powerful economically than Stockholm because of this bridge. Malmo is a great town, and from there you would just, um, you know, there's a train line that takes you right up the coast, okay, to Jotaburg. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I would remind you is that in the, I don't know how much you know about this. Have you been in the Swedish countryside much before? No, I haven't. Well, there's, you remember the. Um, movie The Immigrants or The New Land. I don't know if you remember that. But no, I didn't see it. The, um, the greatest emigration from any country in Europe to the United States, I believe, was in southern Sweden. And people just, I, I don't know if it's, I guess it's a reflection of how miserable it was to live there during the um, 1800s or something like this, but droves of people left Sweden for America. And you can visit a museum in Växjö in the center of Sweden that is just fascinating about the immigration and that's also near the glassblowing region, where all the okay. famous glass orifers and the other less famous but more traditional glassblowing works are there, and they welcome the tourists because it's a big part of their economy. And my favorite city in Sweden outside of Stockholm is actually on the east coast. It's Kalmar. Okay. And um, Kalmar just has a wonderful sort of small-town charm that you can enjoy on the waterfront before heading up to Stockholm. There's not a lot of great sites that I know about on the west coast of Sweden, to be frank with you. People like Jotaburg, uh, but I like Kalmar better. Okay. I hope that's helpful. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Yeah, and remember, Sweden's pretty expensive, but that's, that's what I hear. It's expensive, but you know, you can. There are plenty of ways that you can travel in Scandinavia. There's almost no cheap way to go, so it forces you into finer accommodations and finer food and everything. 
Last time I was up there, I looked around, and 17 out of 20 people in the restaurant were, were drinking water. So people are having a tough time locally also, and you're just going to have to consume a little more carefully. But uh, the cultural wonders are, are vivid and, and loud and clear for all of us visitors. So enjoy your trip. Thank you very much. Bye now. Bye-bye. Public radio is your next best thing to a plane ticket. And this is Travel with Rick Steves. Give us a call at 877-333-RICK. We have some fun ways we'd like to encourage your participation in Travel with Rick Steves. When you go to our website at ricksteves.com, the radio section has a place you can submit one of three things we're looking for from our listeners. A hometown brag, an audio postcard, or traveler's haiku. Can you describe the place where you live so that other travelers would want to visit it? Maybe you live in a popular destination and you have a unique take on it. Or perhaps you live in a place that nobody visits and you think they should. See if you can single-handedly bump up the tourist trade in your hometown. Send us a short hometown promo, and we'll use our favorites on the air and post them on our website. Another way we'd like to hear from you is something we're calling audio postcards. If you have recording equipment and in your travels you come across some compelling sounds that you think are worth sharing, sounds that paint an audio portrait, something that would sound interesting for a minute or two on the radio, we'd like to hear it too. Attach it to an email as an MP3 file and send it to us at radio at ricksteves.com. And for our traveling poets, send us a haiku. A haiku is a traditional Japanese form of poetry using three lines. Remember, the first one is five syllables long, the second line contains seven syllables, and the third one is five syllables long. There's usually a reference to nature and an element of surprise in a haiku, but we're not purists about the form. We just want to hear how travel has brought out the poet in you. We'll read our favorites on the air. So again, we're looking for your submissions. Write up a paragraph or two about where you live. Record a minute or two of natural sound that makes an intriguing audio postcard. Or write us a haiku and send your submissions to radio at ricksteves.com. If what you send makes it on our show, we'll send you a gift certificate worth $20 to use in the travel store at ricksteves.com. We're looking forward to hearing from you. A real taste of Europe and your calls are next on the menu on Travel with Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and today travel is eating. We're going to eat our way through some of the fine cultures and cuisines of Europe, and I've got with me Jamie Blair Gould, and Jamie has made his mark as a man who puts together tours for people who want to have a gourmet look at the best of Europe. Jamie is British. That might explain his interest in good food. Uh, And uh, Jamie has moved to Italy. That might also explain his interest in good food, where he lives with his Belgian wife, Nina, and their two kids. Jamie has his own tour company, Papillon Select Tours, and his website is papillonselect.com. And we're uh, welcoming Jamie right now because we all want to be inspired to mix in a little good eating with our good travels. Jamie, thanks for being with us. Uh, Nice to be here, Rick. Yeah, you know, when when people do surveys of why do you travel, always to enjoy the food is high up on the list. And when you go to Europe, uh, there's so many opportunities to um, mess up and have lousy food and spend a lot of money. And there's opportunities to really enjoy an important part of the culture by eating well and smartly. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think it's – and you hit the nail on the head when you said food culture because it really is a culture. I grew up in Great Britain where we know that uh, there are pretty good meals in Britain but it's not uh, – the standard is probably not as high as elsewhere in Europe. But uh, we would eat and have good meals. But once you went abroad, France, Spain, the Mediterranean cultures, you really realize that it is a culture down there. And it's more than just the, uh, the, the meal that's put there. It's where the ingredients come from, where they're shopped, how they're prepared. And uh, it changes with the seasons. It changes with the land. And for me, that's one of the most interesting aspects. And, and people grow up with an appreciation for that. The children in France know the wine. They certainly do. They, uh, they're encouraged to try things from an early age and they're encouraged to know about it as well. To understand it and to, to respect it. To understand it. And I think this uh, seasonal aspect is very important. For instance, uh, I, as you've mentioned, I live in Luca now, which uh, is synonymous with olive oil. Uh, the, the first olives that are picked and crushed, there's a particular flavor to it. There's a spritz to it, which some people who are uninitiated find quite difficult. But it's actually uh, remarkably good, and the locals really like this uh, new olive oil. This is fascinating to me that people can be aficionados of different kinds of culture. I mean, we're aware, we know wine snobs who know all the fine little points of wine, but there's cheese uh, appreciation, there's oil appreciation. Yeah. We, we visited these olive oil factories on our Village Italy tour, and it was incredible the difference in the olive oils and what respect and passion people have for good olive oil. Well, people think that there's differences perhaps between uh, Italian oil and French olive oil and Spanish olive oil, but it goes much further than that. It's just like wine. Uh, In Luca, I have, uh, and it's a a funny thing, when people come to uh, dinner with you in the States or in Great Britain. They usually bring a bottle of wine. At this time of year in Luca, bring, people proudly present you with a musty little bottle of their, their new harvest of olive oil. And uh, I do olive oil tastings on, on tours. They, it's incredible. We'll have 13 different olive oils and we'll, we'll taste them and there's a remarkable difference. It's funny you say that because my wife and I were just in Florence and we went to my favorite restaurant in Florence and, in, and the man wanted to gift us with something and instead of giving us a bottle of wine, he gave us a bottle of his family's oil. Well, it's much... Uh, it's it's. <laughs> It's a much nicer present to have. It lasts a lot longer. We took it home and now every time we have our bruschetta, we've got a little bit of Italy there. Yes. Uh, You know, you can't have a good bruschetta in America. Just there's something, the ingredients or even the environment. I'm not sure what the deal is. But it is. It's more than just having olive oil. It's a funny thing. When I come to the States and olive oil, uh, you go to a restaurant and they proudly bring out a white plate with this olive oil they pour and sometimes balsamic vinegar. And I've never seen the balsamic vinegar done in Italy. At home, it's something like it's the equivalent to the peanut butter jelly sandwiches you have here. Every kid goes home, grabs the olive oil and pours it on on, on the bread. And I think the uh, the bread too. Uh, if, if I'm having a dinner party back in Luca, I will drive quite a distance to get the particular bread and then it has to be toasted on the open fire. You don't have to do this, but this is the length that people go to to make sure these, uh, these wonderful delicacies are shown off to their best. This is the respect that Europe has for this fine food culture and it comes right down into some basic travel skills. A lot of Americans are just really put off by what they call slow service and they don't realize that in Europe... When you get slow service in a restaurant, that's actually respectful service. You get the table for as long as you want. They're not trying to turn over those tables. Americans are, are routinely eating on the way to somewhere. And I think in Europe, you eat, and that is the event of the evening, and it'll be an all-evening affair. Oh, Italians would get very upset, and French, if they were served too quickly. If you put your knife and fork down and out came the next course, they really wouldn't want that because the idea is that you're there to enjoy the food and uh, enjoy the company of the people you're with. Now, if you want fast service, you can ask for it and you'll get it. Yes. But it's, un- it's unfortunate. 
the restaurant wants you to have that be the event. And, and I think there are horses for courses. There are different restaurants that respond to that. You want to choose your restaurant. If you want a quick meal and um, take for Italy, for an example, it's a marvelous snacking country. You can go and have pizza. You can go and have um, several of the other wonderful panini, as you know, down there. But if you want to sit down at a restaurant, perhaps you want to be a little bit uh, 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 enjoy the meal, enjoy the ambience and enjoy the, the flavor of the people who are dining with you. And in, in Europe, mate, you live there, Jim. You're English mm. and you live in Italy uh, near the Leaning Tower of Pisa, Luca's about an yes. hour away from the Leaning oh, Tower of Pisa, yeah, half, half an hour. hour or something. And uh, I, I find that now Europe is sort of getting into the capitalist swing of things. The European Union has got a bigger GDP than the United States and they're producing a lot. On the other hand, they're maintaining sort of the – there's a sacredness of the tempo of life and you're not mm. going to compromise your quality of life just to make more money I don't think in Europe. And that is why I, I love the French because I think the French hold this higher than everybody else, particularly in the wine industry oh, and many others that uh, they are not going to adapt their wines to suit the palate. They've been making wines. They'll do it to a certain degree but – They've been making wines that way. That's the believe the way they believe the wines are best. And if you don't like it, well, go and drink somebody else's wines. But that is how they show off their wines. I couldn't believe when I wanted to stop, uh, skip lunch because we had to film on our TV work in Paris. Our guide could not believe this. This I don't care how important your work is. I don't care what you got to do. You got to stop for lunch. Absolutely. Yes. It's uh, they they we eat to live. They live to eat. Boy, that's a big difference. So, Jamie, we want to go over there and enjoy, at, at least during our visit, this wonderful quality cuisine and so on. But the dollar is pretty low right now. Uh, can you eat well and enjoy the high cuisine without going broke? Oh, of course you can. I think uh, when we talk about high cuisine, then maybe we're talking about um, an expensive meal. But expensive meal and high cuisine isn't always wonderful food necessarily. I think you can get wonderful ingredients and trattoria-style food in Italian restaurants, which is everybody's good. It depends what you want. High cuisine is for a particular occasion. Italians don't go out to fancy restaurants. They go out to good quality, good ingredients, well-cooked restaurants, and these aren't necessarily expensive. Now, you're Mr. Gourmet and I'm Mr. Budget Travel, and I contend that you can even have a picnic which can be high cuisine because you can enjoy the wonderful local I believe. I think that picnics are the, ve- the way to go. And uh, I would recommend to everybody that rather than going to restaurants twice a day, that they went to a restaurant once perhaps for the evening meal. And at lunchtime, they find a beautiful location, go to one of the superb markets they have and, and just get carried away, anything that looks good. And you don't have to speak the language. You'll find that you'll meet the locals, uh, the color, the wonder. They'll understand. You point at what you want. And they're used to having people coming through. And they'll tell you what's good. And uh, they, they, they want you to eat well. And you can be having a picnic and go and actually spend the highest you can in these different little uh, shops and delis and so on because the, you can't spend much money and get top-end ingredients for a very classy picnic. Well, for instance, if I even if you would just want a sandwich made up, rather than going and getting ready-made sandwiches as we do in our countries, uh, which turn out to be quite expensive, what you could do is go into any delicatessen down there and say, I want that meat, I want that cheese, and just point to them. They'll slice as much as you like. They usually have panini in the back, and they'll put that meat, and it won't be the price of the sandwich. It'll be the price of the bread and the price of the meat and the cheese that they weigh. That's a great experience. It's hands-on. It's communicating with people. It's a good budget trick. Bottom line, you're eating better. Absolutely. And taste the difference. Hey, we've got some calls, Jamie, here from all over the United States, and we've got some people who are good eaters in their travels, and I want to get to them. we got Chris from Bucks County, Pennsylvania on the line, and and Chris is, uh, it sounds like, enthusiastic about matching the food with the local wines and beers. Uh, Chris, where were you traveling, and how did this work for you? Well, uh, it was two trips over the last two years, one to uh, Provence uh, and the hill country up above, and uh, then another trip to visit our daughter in, who was studying in southern Germany. We went through uh, the Schwabia area and the Black Forest and then over to uh, Alsace. And, uh, so were you adventuring? Stay right on the middle of the wine road. And you were trying new foods and mit- matching it with uh, the local... Well, uh, well whatever the local uh, wine or beer was. Uh, and I, I was always... I didn't want to try something I knew. That's uh, probably good advice when you're traveling. Jamie, any thoughts on that? Well, I think it's absolutely right. When I uh, travel, I, I think that the, the local wine that they have there, uh, whether it's 
just because I like the romance of it, or it is actually true. It does taste better with the food there. And take cheeses, for example. Uh, in England, for instance, if you have a ploughman's lunch, the beer, the ale, goes so well with the cheddar cheese, which you get. Um, French soft cheeses, a glass of red wine, uh, goat's cheese, a glass of Chablis and Burgundy, for instance, works fantastic. And I'm not even sure if it's actually better, but psychologically, it just feels right. When I'm in southern India, I eat a vegetarian tali. I don't think I've had a vegetarian tali since, but when I was in southern India, that made a lot of sense. When I'm in England, a spot of tea feels just right. You know, after a long day of sightseeing, go back to the bed and breakfast, a spot of tea. I don't drink tea. In England, it's right. When I'm in the south of France, bandol is my wine. And I've never had bandol anywhere else, but I drink it in the south of France. It's great. Italy, Florence, Chianti, whatever. Um, That's very good advice, and I think it just makes the traveling a little more fun. Yeah, I think it does. Definitely. It's uh, more interesting and you get more out of the locals. And if you ask people as well, what do you have with this? Then you're engaging with people. And the more you engage with the with the locals, the more I believe you'll get out of the your trip. Chris, what was your favorite uh, sort of food discovery or, or wine discovery in your travels? Well, I, I think the thing that surprised me the most was the, uh, the uh, I, I guess it's Schwabisch, uh, Maltaschen, which is a, a ravioli made in Germany, which is totally different from anything you'd find in Italy. Uh, the local beer went with it so well, we didn't even try the German wine with it because it was uh, what everybody was having with it. That and the um, uh, Spargel, the... Um, uh, white asparagus. White asparagus, oh, yes. Yeah. And Germans are absolutely nuts about that. Oh. And you find out why. I, I, My wife cooks asparagus here at home, and I like it, but it's nothing like you have over in Germany. I'll never forget when some business associates of my father sent to our family uh, some white asparagus. And I thought, albino asparagus? What's going on? But now, when I go to Germany during the season, when white asparagus is there, I see everybody's bragging, white asparagus are in. And when you see a sign handwritten on the outside of the restaurant saying, hey, we got snails, hey, we got white asparagus, hey, we got uh, the uh, porcini mushrooms, whatever, you know that's what you're going to go for. Uh, I think the seasonality is very, very important as well. And it's more than just having the asparagus. It's also the festivals and everything that go with it. In Italy, they'll even go out in the rice harvest and go and choose their risotto rice. And whilst they're out there for the day, they'll probably go to their favorite restaurant in that region. There's a beautiful link from the country, the town to the countryside. You know, porcini mushrooms or something. I'm, I'm not that sophisticated with my mushrooms. But boy, when you hit porcini mushrooms when they're in season... It's like the difference between a box of rotgut wine and the finest red wine, I think. And I think it's also sad that these days in the, in the USA and in Great Britain and uh, other countries that we've lost this seasonality and that we want tomatoes all the time or tomatoes, as you say, all, all the year round. And uh, everybody knows, even in Italy, where they have tomatoes all, uh, a lot longer, when they're in season – they taste completely different. So why shouldn't it be with everything? And why not make our, our, our calendar of eating revolve around what's in season? By the way, there's a budget trick that I think is very important. When I'm looking for a restaurant, I want a small selection, handwritten, one language, local language only menu from a mom and pop little restaurant. That indicates that the menu was determined by what was fresh in the market this morning rather than some big, long selection in three languages to attract all the tourists. This is a menu clearly dictated by the seasons, prepared with pride, and focusing on the return loyalty of their neighborhood customers. It's a good, I think it's good advice for choosing a restaurant anywhere in Europe. Yeah, I think uh, one one of my recommendations is the smaller the menu, probably the better the place is, certainly on the lower end of the budget, because uh, if you see a large menu, I mean, they can't be preparing everything fresh. And ask the restaurateur, what's fresh? What do you recommend yes. today? And, and I think if they've got any integrity at all, they'll tell you what they what they really are enthusiastic about. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for your call. Thank you. We have Marsha on the phone from Intervale, New Hampshire. And uh, Marsha is concerned about smoke-free places to eat. Marsha, are you there? Hi. Yeah, what are, what's on your mind? Hi, Marsha. Well, my question is more about the ambiance of the eating experience. Um, I travel often to Europe, and while I enjoy sampling the local cuisine, what I don't enjoy is eating when at the tables around me people are smoking. Um, I think it's been really difficult to find restaurants that make accommodations for non-smokers, so what I often wind up doing is going into a department store cafeteria that has a designated non-smoking section, or I shop at the open-air markets and do a picnic. And I'm just wondering if you have any suggestions or alternatives. 
I think that's changing a, a lot, Marsha, these days in Europe. I think if you go in, it might not be as clearly labeled down there. But if you tell the people non-smoking and if you're in a, a touristy area, they, they'll understand what non-smoking means. I think you will find that they will put you into an area which is away from the smoke. It is a problem in Europe, but I think it is becoming uh, less and less and less so. Uh, all the European countries now banning smoking in, in public areas, out in uh, public offices, in railway stations and the like. But uh, it's it's not quite come into the restaurant, but I think you'll find, particularly in the tourist area office, if you ask, they will um, have a no smoking area. Actually, I think that there's been a revolutionary change. And I mean, I, I was just in Italy last month and it was the first day where they actually were requiring restaurants to provide smoke free environments and finding people who were smoking or finding restaurants that allowed people to smoke in their restaurants. I mean, isn't this a big legal change going on in Europe now? Yes, I believe. I, uh, my understanding is Italy was the last of the, the countries to sign up to this. Uh, smoking so, is, a, is a big... Uh, Ireland now, smoke-free pubs. Marcia, I think the good news is Europe is snowballing into this smoke-free sensitivity. And if you were there two or three years ago, when were you there, Marcia, when you are having trouble with smoke? Uh, this was in March of April of last year, and I was in uh, Germany, Belgium, and Holland. Yeah, it's and changing. And what I found was a lot of the lodging properties no longer allowed smoking at breakfast, which was welcome change. Right. Um, but I still, when I, you know, would ask if there was non-smoking, and I speak German, um, you know, a lot of places I just got to look like, mm. you know, it was my problem. Yeah, I've got that for years. When I try to tell restaurants and hotels that they would go smoke-free because Americans want to go smoke-free, they look at me and they say, you know, wait a while, Americans will be smoking again real soon. This is just a trend. But no, uh, Europe is catching on, and I believe because of European Union uh, regulations that in the next couple of years, all of eating places in Europe will be smoke-free. So this is very, very good news for travelers. Yes, it is. Thanks, Marcia, for your call. Thank you. Come with me. <laughs> Follow me, okay? <laughs> Public Radio is your next best thing to a plane ticket. And this is Travel with Rick Steves. Give us a call at 877-333-RICK or email your questions to radio at ricksteves.com. You can't resist a fish bladder cubes with her dainty lemon twisted. You look a little green. What's the beef? Try your view. Not hungry, what's the matter? It's something eating you. Coming up, more tips on gourmet travel with Jamie Blair Gould and your calls as we eat our way through Europe on Travel with Rick Steves. 877-333-RICK. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jamie Blair Gould, gourmet traveler, uh, enthusiast about good food, and he incorporates that into his tour guiding. Yeah, we've got Karen in Schaumburg, Illinois, and Karen is really into savoring the tastes of nuts, olives, and cheeses when she's traveling in the Mediterranean part of Europe. Tell us a little bit about your uh, passion for nuts and olives and cheeses. Well, I became addicted to Marcona almonds when I visited Spain. They're not too uncommon around where I'm from, near the Chicago, Illinois area, but once you start eating hazelnuts from Italy and Marcona almonds from Spain, you just get hooked. Can you find those in the Chicago area? Uh, you 
know, if you really try to go to the smaller marketplaces, we have a place called like Trader Joe's or a Whole Foods, but they're not entirely all that common in the regular big supermarkets. And it's not quite the same because you're not there. So tell us more about your interest in olives and cheeses. Well, we went to an olive oil factory in Italy and was very interested in learning about the different types of processes, how olive oil is processed and what a virgin olive oil is as opposed to extra virgin olive oil. Yeah, what's and the deal? I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit, either you or Rick or Jamie, about the regional differences in, in the uses of olives from the different uh, countries such as Italy, mm. Spain, and France, and Greece. Well, they, they all have remarkably different flavors, and I'm always amazed how the the regional dishes go with the olive oils from the particular region. For instance, I'm from Luco, and uh, the Lucchese are very, very proud of their olive oil. And uh, the, Luca, the Luca diet is also fixed around uh, a lot of soups. And if you have a bowl of thick soup, it sounds remarkable, but if you boil the good green, green grass flavor olive oil of Luca onto the soup and mix it in, it brings it up. It doesn't make it greasy like butter does. It has the opposite effects. It makes it more fresh and vegetally. Wow. Now, you're from Lucca, and the Lucchese have a certain passion for this or that. What's the population of Lucca? It's about uh, it, it, the whole of the Lucchese, as they call it. The region's about 80,000. 80,000. Can you imagine a region in America with 80,000 people, and uh, they have their own name for themselves and their own passions for this or that kind of olive oil? That's one of the charming things about European travel, I think. Are there certain types of olives that are used for Italian olive oil? Yes, there are there are certain um, there is there are a certain number of uh, olives all up and down the country. For instance, in Luca, there are five main types and principally two types. Uh, I find it very difficult to distinguish between each of those olives down there. They're not quite down to having the single varietals, but you can definitely taste the the difference in the different regions. For instance, I go up the coast to the Cinque Terre, which I know Rick likes a lot, and there the olive oil of Liguria, which is just uh, an hour and a half from Luca, is completely different, and it goes so well with sea. Food, yeah. for instance, they would have the, uh, the the beautiful little baby fish that come out of that gulf down there, and then they would pour the olive. They make a salad. They'd pour the olive all over it and squeeze lemon on the top. But that olive oil and the wine from the hills, which I would never drink anywhere else but in situ, just seems to work so well. In situ, what do you mean? In situ, in in the actual situation, right. you've got to have it there. So it's you drink like the vino della Cinque Terre in the Cinque Terre. Yeah, I, I, pastis is the perfect thing when you're playing boule in the south of France. But take it out, and no, thank yeah. you. I don't want vino della Cinque Terre in Burgundy. I'm no. sorry, you know, but it it feels good on the Italian Riviera. Do they put olive oil in the pesto like they have the basil and they mix in olive yeah, oil? They, yes, they certainly do. And, and I would imagine that is the indigenous olive oil that makes that pesto so and great. as well as the, uh, the 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 basil or the basil, as you say, as well. The the, the basil is extremely important, the type of basil they use. And really, you could do a comparative tasting with five different pestos made exactly the same, but with different types of basil down there, and they would taste extremely different. Karen, did you get it clear on what is extra virgin olive oil and all that? Well, maybe you can explain it to I'm me curious about again that. to yeah. refresh my memory. It's really all to do with uh, the acidity level. And to have the extra virgin oil, they, they, they basically say it has to have an acidity of less than 1%. Uh, the, what they don't say, though, is how they get it to less than 1%. So most of the olive oils that you get on the shelves uh, in the USA, the big proprietary brands, they pick the olives. They don't pick them. They, they wait till they fall off or they shake them off. Usually by that time, they've slightly ripened too much and their acidity level's a bit high. And they are allowed to chemically neutralize them and bring them back to 1%, and they can still put the extra virgin olive oil on. The um, If you go to Italy itself, you have these boutique olive oils, these designer where people actually have to pick them. You go up, I've just actually been doing it, um, going up and picking them with, uh, you, you can use electronic, um, they're like combs, they comb them off down there, but you can't shake them off. By this time, the acidity still uh, low enough, and so they're natural acidity, and you aren't allowed to chemically neutralize them. Wow, so that's actually an economic thing, is that for a big corporate olive production in America, it's just cheaper to let them ripen a little further 
But if you want the more, oh, it's, the it's finer extremely olive. labor intensive. So you pay much more for your olives that are picked at the right time. You would have to, and because there isn't a big enough market for it, they can't right. really export it over to the United States. Um, so you don't get too many of these um, quality hand-picked boutique, if you like, uh, extra virgin olive oils. And if I was going to the United States, when people ask me what wine shall I take back, I'd say, well, you drink the wine here and take the olive oil back because that'll last a lot longer. Balsamic vinegar's the same wow. because you can enjoy that over a year. West, your uh, and I would take if you're going to take olive oil back. I'd take more than one. I'd take a couple and have your own olive oil tasting back there. What do you know about getting it through customs and so on? Is that no problem? I've just brought some now for um, my wife brought a liter home and it was no problem at all. No so problem at that's all. That's a great souvenir tip. And this reminds me of this fundamental difference I think in Europe and the United States. In Europe, people are willing to spend more money for the quality. Uh, food they want to put into their bodies. I, I think so. But on the other hand, it doesn't make it terribly expensive because if enough people insist on free-range eggs, for instance, then the price of free-range eggs comes down. Um, and so it's not necessarily much more expensive. But in Italy, they've got the slow food movement, right? And this is where they're going to want to know who made the cheese and they're going to want to know uh, where where did the uh, prosciutto come from? And it's done organically without chemicals. And it's uh, generally a, a smaller boutique production without the aid of chemicals. That might cost them a little more, but but they just psychologically or, or almost spiritually, they want to know who made this and what am I eating? And I think the people who make it is the spiritual thing as well. It is the way of life. Living in Italy particularly, I have felt this. It's the, the standard of life, the way of life. If you enjoy making a quality product, it makes life a lot more satisfying. And I think people really enjoy it in those countries. Karen, thank you very much for your call. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, yeah. Jamie. Thank you, Karen. We have Anna on the line in Reed Springs, Missouri. And Anna has a pointer on how she gets the best local food at the lowest prices. Anna, yeah, what's your tip? When we well, lived for two years in England and traveled throughout Europe, we were on a budget because I'm a librarian. So we um, found the best regional flavors by asking the shopkeepers and the grandmothers this question. Where was the last place you took your family to eat? That's and very they, good. And sometimes we also just went down to the docks and watched where the fish came in and where the fish went so we could get the local fish. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, when I'm doing my research for my guidebooks, I'll talk to the people at the tourist board, and I won't ask them, where do you recommend a tourist to eat? I say, where do you go for lunch? When so, you ask a taxi driver, where do you recommend, you usually get to their cousin's place. That's true. There's cronyism all over Europe that can be a problem. You were traveling uh, from a base in England all over Europe? Yes. Wow. And what was your favorite food? Um, well, in Barcelona, paella. In Tuscany, boar's head. <laughs> we ate what the regional people ate. Could you eat paella without going broke? Oh, yes. We found a very nice place that just served, uh, well, the lady that <laughs> we met later that evening said the paella was made from rat meat. It didn't bother me at all. It tasted good, but. When I, she said the rice fields where the rats grow have sweet rat, and we use the rat meat for paella. I'm not sure it was true, but... <laughs> boy, I don't know about that. <laughs> it was a bargain. <laughs> I think the key here is you've hit, hit the nail on the head, really, is interaction with the locals. If you ask them, I find that, uh, you know, I speak um, some of these languages reasonably, and I find that if I start asking people, I, I, I have it's, it's difficult to get away in the end. They want to tell you how to do something with everything. I was in the butcher the other day and um, they had some um, bull's testicles on the on the counter and the butcher was insisting that how wonderful they were. He gave me about 15 different recipes. I hasten to add I didn't try them. But uh, if, you, if you start talking to people, you will get um, uh, input for sure. I found from a, um, Anna's talking about paella in the uh, little uh, tapas bars in Spain, they cook up a big platter of paella, and all of a sudden, it's paella. Everybody grabs a little dish. Paella is quite expensive in restaurants, but uh, when you go to the tapas bars and it comes out fresh out of the oven, that paella is really a treat. Yeah, I think the, uh, the, t the tapas bars, or the pinchos, as they call them in the Basque Country, I've just spent uh, quite a while in the Basque Country, is a fantastic way of eating. You just go from bar to bar to bar and try all these little tasty savouries and make that the meal. Uh, you can try all the regional delicacies. And uh, again, the, uh, uh, the bar people want to point you in the direction of the, the local delicacies. Oh, yeah. And, and a lot of people are frustrated in Spain because the dining hours are so late. And if you don't feel like eating dinner at 10 o'clock, that can be frustrating. The tapas bars are a very good social scene as well as a budget, um, a budget trick and a maximum experience kind of trick. You're eating all sorts of ugly things on toothpicks and washing them down with little glasses of local beer. Or wine. Hey, we've got a lot going on here with 
Eating Our Way Through Europe. We're talking with Jamie Blair Gould, who is a gourmet traveler, an enthusiast about good food, and he incorporates that into his tour guiding. He's got a tour company called Pepion Select Tours. We'll have his uh, website at ricksteves.com, where we have um, backup information for all of our interviews. Hey, Jamie, when we're in France, there's this big notion of terroir, where the environment kind of connects with the culture and the sunshine and the wine. I don't quite get this terroir business. What's well, the Well, terroir, if, if you had to translate it, it's um, territoriality, if you will, i.e. that that piece of ground uh, makes a difference to the, to the flavor of what's grown there. In other words, if you grew a, a, a tomato in, uh, here in Edmonds and you grew it on the other side of the mountains, the soil's different, the climate's different, uh, and therefore it's going to taste different. The wine world in particular has discovered this. I mean, a, a lot of us are looking at the, the, the green aspect of everything, but the quality producers have come to the same uh, conclusion by just trying to make it better. If you pour con- pesticides and many other things into a piece of land time and time again, every, you're ruining the, the, the terroir of it, and every bit of taste, piece of land is going to taste the same because the, the structure is going to be the same. So many places are cleaning it up, and they're expose, exposing it to the, the regional flavor. So if it's on clay, if it's on limestone, it adds another different flavor. So um, you, you, you definitely get the taste of that little aspect, that little pocket of land and climate. So now this – is this something that is like widespread or are this just really sophisticated foodies in France and Italy and so on that would appreciate this t- notion of terroir? No, I think it, I think we tend to think – I hate this word of haute cuisine, high cuisine, high wines and everything because it makes it always seem as though it's so expensive and so um, uh, on, on a certain level or plateau out there. It's much more that – the common man, everybody out there just is tasting and he knows that tomatoes from that region, if they're on the, grown on the volcanic soil of Vesuvio, for instance, add a particular flavor to it. Just like we know, we, I, mean, I think everybody accepts today that the Napa Valley produces a particularly good wild. The soil, the climate, everything is right for it. So why shouldn't it be for carrots? Why shouldn't it be for chickens that the, the, the feed on them? Um, it, it's, it's really common sense. So it's a holistic approach to enjoying the, the, the production of the land where you live. Yes, and I think that if you, if you try and understand this as you travel around to ask yourself the question, why do the tomatoes taste so good here? What is it that gives this? It's, it adds another dimension to your travel experience. I got to say the produce in Europe teaches you a lot about produce we've been raised on, not realizing how good it can actually taste. Well, I've been amazed when um, doing my tours um, how many people have said to me, so older people from a, a, a past generations have said, this is how it used to taste here. I, we have commercialized and chemicalized and mass-produced stuff to such a level, but I think uh, it is unfortunately going that way some in Europe. But uh, I think it's, um, it, it, it's very important. Yeah, we've got some email questions. We have a writer from Irvine, California, who says he appreciates the etiquette information. He wants more information on how to order in different establishments, including figuring out what drinks go with the right food in different countries. Are there any etiquette kind of concerns, Jamie, that you find Americans need a little bit of help on? I think that each country has its own specific etiquette and sometimes each region. So I think it's more of a regional thing that you have to uh, understand. But I think tolerance is the word. Uh, If you find the same thing happening time and time again, there must be just a different mentality towards it. In other words, if you're having a reoccurring problem. If you're having a reoccurring. Wise up. I mean, something's going wrong here. Take another look. And maybe ask somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, I think rather than Americans trying to get it right all the time, just be honest. Be open to different things. Be respectful of cultural differences and, and be interested in learning. Well, I think it's important that when you go to another country, you've got to try and empty your mind of everything you do there. Don't judge it by your standards. Just go in and try and do as the locals do. That's what I do when I go into a bar. I try and order what they're doing, how they're doing it, and uh, I get a lot more out of it that way, and I feel. It, it is fun because you pick up a lot. I mean, you go into a pub in England and uh, sit at a table, you might be left alone. Sit at the bar, you're going to be involved in a conversation, whether you like it or not. And I guess the etiquette is, if you want to talk, you sit at the bar. Well, if you uh, if you want to drink, you better go to the bar because in England, they're not going to come to the table. There's an etiquette thing straight away. And a lot of Americans mess up on that. They sit at the table for 20 minutes and wonder, what's going on? Well, anybody who knows a pub knows there's no service here. You've got to go to the bar to get your drink. And again, we have to say, if you don't know, ask. It's that interaction again, which makes the travel experience so much richer.
my whole theme is I'm just a bumpkin, wide open, trying to broaden my perspective through travel. I'm I'm not trying to be a sophisticate when I'm in Portugal or, or uh, Poland or, or uh, France trying to enjoy the food. I just love enjoying the food. Last point, truffles. Can you actually join a truffles hunt in Italy and, and sniff some of those beautiful uh, uh, delicacies out? Uh, yes, you can. We've done it many times on tours. It, of course, it depends on the weather. It's like mushroom hunting. If First you of all, what is rain. a truffle for people who don't know? What is a truffle? A truffle is a type of fungus. Um, it looks like a nulled up potato. There are several varieties of them and they come at different seasons. Quite expensive. When, when, if you get a white truffle, for instance, even black truffles at particular types of season, they are enormously. They're the, after saf- saffron, they're the second most expensive comestible, I believe, uh, on the market. But um, The second most expensive edible thing. Yes. And then you shave it in little tiny shavings on your... There are various ways of doing it. You can, uh, I mean, the, 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 the flavor is so strong that if you put a, a truffle in a plastic container full of eggs, the eggshells are porous. And so the flavors of the truffle will go into the eggs without you even having to use the truffle. But it is a delicacy, absolutely wonderful, and a little goes a long way. But try and have it in season and don't go for those awful truffle oils. A lot of them come from China and various other places, and they aren't the same thing at all. Again, it's seasons, it's regionality. If it's in season, you will find it on the menus. Uh, A risotto, for instance, with a little bit of shaved truffle, omelette, perfect way of having it. Probably one of the fundamental tips for eating smartly in Europe, go with the seasons. Go with the seasons, yeah. Eat the regional specialties. I'll never forget when I was in Padua in northern Italy once. I was, as the students do, as anybody who loves food do, you got a dish of beautiful olive oil. You got your uh, salt and pepper or your pepper on it. And then you got your beautiful local bread. Locals sit around and they dip their bread in the olive oil and munch on it and chat out under the stars. And a man told me next to me, he says, I was doing this, dipping, eating, dipping, eating. He says, you're making the scarpetta. That means the little shoe. And they call it the little shoe. And I just feel that like when I'm traveling, I'm sort of a scarpetta, the sopping up the beautiful cultures all across the, this beautiful planet. And when we can tune into the local cuisine, that's just as important as tuning into the, the great art and, and, and the other aspects of those cultures. Jamie Blair Gould, thank you so much for your fascinating information on eating well in Europe. Thank you very much. It's nice talking with you, Rick. There are spices and vegetables that you can grow Some are under the ground, some grow tall Though they all have their qualities This you must know, that the garlic is best of them all Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington You'll find more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com, where you can look up information on today's program and others in this series. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of Travel with Rick Steves. That's where you can also send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department and sign up for our Radio Waves email updates. Details are at ricksteves.com. Some of the people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Sonia Grosset and Robin Goddard, technical support from Dan Suter and Matt Iglesias, and additional assistance from Reagan Sewell and Pat O'Connor. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.